Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, we talk about Beaver Island and the strange Mormon King James Strang. You better believe he was a polygamist. Then Josh exaggerates the budget by a few billion dollars for this Japanese film whose attention to detail and cutting-edge techniques elevated the anime art form into a blood geyser of greatness with this crowning achievement. I'm talking about Akira. Or if you have an uncultured American tongue like us, Akira. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett, how are you? What's going on, buddy? I'm doing awesome. I'm literally uh, living that cabin life. Yeah, are you still on your crazy journey? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of been, uh, you know, we've been we've been driving around, we've been looping around, but I got something uh, got something good for the off top. Oh yeah, you want to get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. So, all right, man. Uh, so I think this will be somewhat applicable to uh, a recent trip that you took. You were actually in Michigan, right next to Lake Michigan, not that long before I was basically in Lake Michigan. That's true. So we missed each little... other by like a week. I know. <laughs> so close, but so far. So there's this uh, island there called Beaver Island that Bree and I visited. We went to go see some awesome friends of ours. They're these full-time... Airstream, livers, dream livers, life pilots, just the whole deal. Kate and Adam. Now, um, they invited us out. We were probably their first guests um, besides like close friends and family. I guess we were the friends besides our family, I think. Um, Because they've only been living on this island for like a month, I think. But they bought some property. They bought, the, I mean, it was, it's like 190 acres. So it's not like a tiny piece of property and they're, that's a lot. Know, they're discussing plans. It is, it's quite a bit and it's like freaking gorgeous too. Like it's kind of unbelievable. Um, but it's got this old kind of creepy house that they're redoing. Uh, it's got a giant boat on it. Um, but the, the craziest thing about this is that, I mean, it's straight up on this island in Lake Michigan. And I guess like I've been to Lake Michigan when I was a kid, but I I just don't remember just how huge and vast it is. And I didn't realize that there are like these huge islands on it. It's crazy how flying over it, you feel like you're over the ocean. I, every time we fly out there, I marvel over how big an inland lake can be totally i mean it uh, when you're on the coast it feels just like you're on the ocean exactly like it so um yeah we actually flew over there we flew out of charlevoix and that's where you guys are staying right charlevoix yeah we're close to there okay well so beaver island is about 30 miles um from charlevoix we hopped on this little tiny uh it's called a britain norman islander i was not familiar with this plane Adam had to tell me what it was, and then I had to Google it and all that. But it was like a four-seater 
with you know just some luggage in the back. There is one pilot. There was like a clear plexiglass screen between Bree and I and the pilot. We were probably six inches from the back of his neck, essentially behind this like clear plastic screen. But the best That's part of hijacking airline screen. Yeah, it is totally. <laughs> Uh, but the best part about flying on this airline was I was able to take my one wheel, of course, to Beaver Island. And I oh, like I didn't man. think that that would be really allowed. I mean, on, an, on another airline, like it wouldn't fit really under the seat. It wouldn't fit in the overhead. You couldn't really check it because it's a bunch of batteries. But I walked in there and I was like, do you guys know what a one wheel is? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, it's like a skateboard with a motor it's got a lot of batteries and she's like ah oh, i don't know john's gotta check it out hey john come look look at this kid's thing and uh so i showed it to him and he's like yeah that's all right so i gotta take my one wheel and like <laughs> zoom around on this island we we lived on kate and adam's boat for like three nights uh so we were like living that boat life so it was just a it was an awesome trip but I did want to tell you a little bit about the history of this as if like island life wasn't weird enough, like, and, and like awesome and crazy. I mean, for example, Kate and Adam knew everybody on the island pretty much in a month, like, and like everybody knew them, like they would meet somebody new and they're like, Oh yeah, you guys are uh, Kate and Adam. And what are your dog's names again? Frank and Baker. And they're like, uh, we haven't met you yet. How many people out there? Super weird. Uh, so the as of the last census in 2010, it's 657, I believe. Wow. Yeah. That is a that's a small town right there, and you're cut off from everything. It, for sure. And they're I mean they I think they take pride in that too. Like it's definitely part of the culture. They recycle everything. They have like state of the art recycling. They do have um, electricity, I guess, piped in on like a giant underwater cable. But if for some reason they can't get electricity from the rest of Michigan, they have like this crazy diesel generator system that'll power the whole island. I mean, it's like extremely like progressive, even though it feels kind of old school. Anyway, it's it's really weird. It's really crazy. Um, Not a bad place for the apocalypse. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I think we'll be heading there in the, in the apocalypse, which, uh, might be, uh, might be happening with all these fires out in California and Washington now. and Oregon. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. Well, so Beaver Island, it's, it's known for its beaches, its forest, and just kind of like how nice and secluded it is. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty popular, um, vacation spot, tourist spot. But what I did not know about this, as if it wasn't like already kind of a, a strange place, the uh, its claim to fame historically is that it was the site of a unique Mormon kingdom. <laughs> oh, interesting. Have you ever heard of this? No. I was raised Mormon. <laughs> that you were well you you um i'm sure that it it would have been sacrilegious to talk about this particular mormon sect um but you oh, know i love talk about these mormons <laughs> yeah so after the death of joseph smith um who of course was the founder of the latter-day saints most latter-day saints 
followed Brigham Young and they considered Brigham Young to be his successor. And I was trying to watch a long YouTube video about this, but my, my service just wasn't good enough here. But there was several different people that were suspected to be Joseph Smith's um, successor in the Church of Latter-day Saints. So there was like people basically vying for this. But Brigham Young, obviously with Salt Lake City, that was kind of like the big one. Um, but many others actually followed this guy named James J. String. So it's spelled just like strange without the E. Now, he founded this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Strangeite, which actually to <laughs> this day name. still has about 130 active members, which strong presence. <laughs> I mean, it's more than zero. It's true. Um, so, of course, he claims that he he it was the sole legitimate continuation of the Mormon Church. Uh, they originally were in this place in Wisconsin, Voree. Not sure how you say it, but it was 1844. They settled. They started this thing at this community, and there's actually I think that's where most of the strangeites that uh, still puts around are located. Um, but they decided that they wanted to escape religious persecution. And so in true uh, LDS fashion, they like went out on a, on a mission to find something cool and crazy. And Classic. they moved all the followers to Beaver Island. This was in 1848. So at the time, the island was mostly Irish immigrants but they these followers, the strangeites, they actually like, did really well under his rule. They became this political power. They founded the town of St. James, which is basically where I was staying. It's the town on the northern part of this small island. They constructed uh, this road. They called it King's Highway uh, that runs through the uh, the island today. It's like kind of the, the primary thoroughfare. I mean, they, they cleared land. They built cabins. They had farms. I mean, they were doing so awesome that string was elected to the Michigan House of Representatives in 1853. And in 1855, he founded the first newspaper in northern Michigan, the Northern Islander. And of course, oh, also in uh, true LDS fashion, um, once they got established on the island, he declared himself a polygamist, contrary to his previous opposition of it. You gotta, you gotta repopulate the island. That's right. <laughs> Got to uh, do your thing. It's like it's like once you get to an island, I guess it like brings out the the creep in you. If you're like in charge, if you have a bunch of followers, I don't know. Never if been. You're gonna in this be position. all repressed and religious. Might as well have a bunch of wives. I mean, what else are you in it for? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, he, well, he had five wives. He had fourteen children. Um, but the, the weirdest part is, yeah, I think it was in 1850 strain proclaimed himself King. <laughs> King's so Road. he was King Strang. Yeah. That's, it was named after him. Uh, and so he, he, he said that he, he's not King of the Island, but he's King of the church mm. and it basically included most of the inhabitants on the Island. So they, they had this like crazy elaborate coronation ceremony he was he was crowned in this this log tabernacle um 
they they put this crown on him. This witness described this crown as a shiny metal ring with a cluster of glass stars on the front. He was wearing a royal red robe. He had a shield, a breastplate. I mean, it was, it was the whole thing, dude. Like he legit what became a king of this island <laughs> church Mormon sect. <laughs> Is there a, are there statues to him or anything on this island? I mean, there there was on the main on the on King's Highway. Um, of course, it was like perfect one wheeling. There was this um, these like different areas that like one of them had actually been turned into. I think it's called the King's Hotel, and um, I believe a few U.S. presidents have actually stayed there. But like it it used to have been the whatever for his church, and then this place was so they had this like fantastic history walk. That was all labeled, but it's even better if you got a one wheel and you can just zoom from like one historical landmark to the to the other. But the, I mean, the the island does like a fantastic job, like uh, conserving these these historical places and then like providing information about it. And I, I just loved it. And I guess this island also, I mean, they have like a a, lo- a lot of scientific research that goes on there. I mean, it's it's a really cool place. But man, little did I know that it had like a little chunk of of mormon history that's really interesting that scientific research must have moved in later i'm assuming oh definitely post string i guess i'll guess (laughs) i'll wrap this story up because um it's not really a a uh a strangeite fellowship there anymore so although he had some some progressive ideas, uh, one of them being the conservation of woodlands. And it is, I mean, just gorgeous wooded areas there. But a lot of people just found his rule really intolerable. I mean, he was like straight up acting like, yeah. So one of his edicts was that he prescribed the clothing of all the women. He, he required them to wear these like specific, yep. (laughs) He's probably married to half of them. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was probably a good chunk. I couldn't find <laughs> exactly how many strangeites there were on this island, but I mean, I think it was in the thousands range, like two thousand. I I couldn't really find an exact number, but um, after these women um, didn't follow his edict, he actually flogged their husbands and it wasn't him personally he just had them flogged and yeah you outsource when you're a king (laughs) exactly the king doesn't do the floggings of course not (laughs) so (laughs) so um while they were recovering from their floggings the husbands conspired against string and in 1856 the u.s naval gunboat the uss michigan Entered the harbor of St. James. He was invited aboard. He was walking along the do- along the dock, and the two cons- um, the two conspirators shot him from behind, and then they ran from the gunboat. And neither of them were arrested and convicted of the murder. If that tells you how everybody was feeling about Strang at this point. So after that, he Brett. died. And <laughs> yeah. That's a classic Mormon ending right there. It, it <laughs> is how really a lot is. of these think, Mormon stories end. Some conspirators totally. shoot them. 
It's very bizarre. Exactly. Ex- I mean, he might have been actually the, you know, the uh, uh, carrying the torch of Joseph Smith. So, I the mean, true so he died. Successor. And these mob, yeah. So these mobs showed up uh, from Mackinac and St. Helena Island, and they expelled all the strangeites from Beaver Island. And now it's just a badass place to visit your friends. Well, I'm sure you appreciated all of his conservation efforts. So it actually didn't <laughs> I end really too did. badly, except for the murder. Yeah, yeah, the floggings, the like you said, the weird repression, but dictated uh, clothing. All's well that ends well, I guess. <laughs> That's pretty crazy, man. Yeah, it's it's so bizarre. And what I think is very interesting about Mormonism is, even though polygamy has been publicly shunned and outlawed in the church, it's pretty much the number one talking point anytime it's brought up. It's very interesting. It's like you you can't really escape from that. That once no. the polygamy stank is on you, it is going to be on you forever. Yeah, it does. Um, it it does seem to be one of the one of the like talking points or the bullet points of the of the church. But I mean, if if you talked to a member of the Church of Latter Day Saints today, I, I I think they would disagree with us. But you can't really rewrite history. I mean, it's. It's a, it's in bold font for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, like polygamy has been disavowed by the church, but it seems like there's always a sect that's willing to break off just to risk it. I mean, you hear about so right. many so many offshoots of Mormonism that are, you know, we're just doing it for the extra wives. That's what it pretty much always boils down to. <laughs> right. Right. So that's really crazy, man. I've never heard that story, and it doesn't surprise me. You were right. It does not surprise me that I never heard that story <laughs> growing up. That is definitely not in the, the literature. Yeah. Speaking of definitely literature, not. man, what's on your content circuit? Anything new? Well, yeah, I actually did watch a movie last night that's been a uh, long time coming. So we're actually in Jackson, Wyoming right now, visiting some just amazing... Uh, family and they have this fantastic theater room and it's like i mean i wish i had a content office like this man for my for my contentology research but we hang up your diploma parasite yeah (laughs) it totally exists uh but have you seen the south korean film parasite no i still have not seen it my list is like a thousand things deep right now and that's definitely on there you know how much I love yeah, it's, South Korean films. It's very good. I do. And it, it, it is a different director, but this director has um, directed a couple films that you might have seen. Have you seen Snowpiercer? Yes, I have indeed. Chris Evans? Yeah. Yep, same director. Yep, uh, Okja is another one. But oh, man, yeah, that was, man, that was a crazy movie. Woo. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know anything about really even the plot of Parasite. I've kind of like avoided everything about it entirely because I knew I was going to watch it. I didn't want to know anything before going into it. So I think that's the right way to, to consume that content. I'll bump it up. Yeah, definitely. How about you? What you been uh, watching lately? I've been on, I've actually been on a horror movie kick, which I kind of had to like dig back into my vault of horror movies that I like to find some stuff that I was really interested in. But 
I've been rewatching all of Rob Zombie's horror movies. So House of a Thousand Corpses. House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> yep. The Devil's Rejects, Three from Hell. And then I also watched 31, which is, it's like a, it's a movie about these like carnies. They get kidnapped and they get per- put in this place called Murderland, which is a, a place on Halloween where these like, these rich socialites pay all these crazy serial killers to hunt people down. And it's honestly not like the greatest movie ever. I wouldn't recommend that as like the top of Rob Zombie's game, but that film does have one of the most iconic horror villains I've ever seen. It's this guy named Doomhead, and he's he's basically like he's painted like a clown. So the top half of his face is white, and then he punches himself in the face until his, his nose starts bleeding, and his entire lower face is just covered in blood. It's like a very disturbing visage. And he's played by this guy, Richard Brake, who, honestly, I didn't really know him for much. I know he had played, like, he played, like, Joe Chill in uh, Batman Begins, like a very bit part. And he played the Night King oh, on, yeah. on uh, Game of Thrones, which is not a part where you really, like, would recognize oh, yeah. him. But he is, like, man, nobody can monologue like this guy. Maybe we should share his monologue. It's very disturbing if you like that kind of thing. So that, and then... Uh, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to check that out. Rob Zombie must have a thing for clowns because he's got a crazy clown in that House of a Thousand Corpse um, series too. Captain Spaulding. Yeah, he's what he really That's has it. is a thing for 70s horror. And I guess there was a lot of clown horror then, but clowns are pretty scary. They're inherently terrifying. So while I was on this kick, I also, this isn't, I don't know if this is something I'd recommend to everyone. Maybe if you're a Devil's Rejects fan, but I watched a four hour long making of Devil's Rejects documentary and watching it, it really just goes through like Rob Zombie's entire process. And first of all, that movie is so disturbing that it's crazy to see them sitting around like a board meeting discussing like, oh, what kind of grain of film do we want? Oh yeah, how dark do we want the shadows to make it more intimidating and all these details that seem like they would just kind of come out naturally through like the fact that Rob Zombie's making something. It's all like they're going through like style books and picking like, Oh yeah, I really like this one looks like it's from the seventies. It's really interesting to see like that process that leads to this terrifying thing being on screen. Huh? That's interesting. Yeah. He's, um, he's definitely a, unique filmmaker for sure i i I can't say that i was like i saw a thousand house of a thousand corpse when i was i think just a little too young or like a little just i don't know i i wasn't like that well versed in that genre but i might appreciate it a lot more now and just i don't know kind of diving into the behind the scenes of it too well the first one is he had like a lot of like budget issues and it went into like basically like stasis mode for a while where the, the producer like dropped the movie and then sold the rights back to him. And so he ended up having to do a lot of band-aiding to the first movie house of a thousand corpses. And that's why it kind of ended up looking like this psychedelic music video. Cause he shot a, a lot of this filler footage like in his own basement. And since it wasn't produced on like high quality, film cameras he had to apply all these like crazy like color filters and everything just so it would kind of make sense as being in the movie and then he he edited the rest of the movie kind of around that theme 
But then with Devil's Rejects, which is the follow-up, which I would say is definitely the, the pinnacle of his movie production, he had like a very clear vi- vision. He had a, a smaller budget, but a more effective team. And he didn't have all these these like rights issues that happened with the first movie. So it's it's a much cleaner produced film. It has like a very specific style and he pretty much nails it all the way through, which is like 70s grunge horror. It's it's really gross, but seeing the behind, behind the scenes, it really you know made me think about like how much care went into making it look specifically that way. So if you're a Rob Zombie fan, uh, 30 Days in Hell is the uh, documentary, which we can also share. But I would recommend everything in his filmography because he's just amazing. And nobody nobody can score a movie like Rob Zombie. Well, there it is. Some some disturbing horror on uh, both of our content circuits, it sounds like. It must be a reflection <laughs> oh. of the times. Yeah, <laughs> interesting analogy. But yes, I agree. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll get into some content. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. So, Josh, I know you got a good one for me. I I just know the bare minimum basics of this particular piece of content, but I haven't had the chance to see it yet. So I am very excited to tell you about this. This is one of my favorite things from my childhood, and it still holds up today. So I'm going to be talking about Akira or Akira if you content The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. So, Josh, I know you got a good one for me. I, I just know the bare minimum basics of this particular piece of content, but I haven't had the chance yes. to see it yet. So I am very excited to tell you about this. This is one of my favorite things from my childhood. And it still holds up today. 
So I'm going to be talking about Akira or Akira, if you want to say it with my uncultured American tongue. And for consistency and to avoid sounding like a stupid accent adopter, I'll be referring to it as Akira from here on out. But Akira, Akira. is the night. Akira! It's the 1988 animated film by Katsuhiro Atomo. He also wrote the manga that the movie is based on. And if you know anything about anime, I'm sure you've had some exposure to this film. But this uh, this film had a 700 million yen budget, which at the time was $5.5 million. And it definitely shows. And, and adjusted for inflation, Brett, that is $900 billion in today's money. Are you serious? No, there's no way not. No, oh, I'm not a, okay. an inflation calculator, so I don't know what the actual number is, but it's a lot. It's probably got, it's got to be like 20 million or 20. It's a lot. 25 million. I mean, that's crazy for an animated movie in the eighties. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So the film synopsis for this, I just stole this directly from a Vice article about the influence of the movie. It's very elegantly put, so I'll just read it to you. And I've kind of taken a Brett, uh, page out of your book, Brett, from the uh, boys' synopsis, where you just kind of stole it from the uh, pro- promotional material, which is fine. Those guys write synopses for a living. so That is true. Uh, the, the synopsis of Akira is set in Neo-Tokyo after World War III, the story follows a gang of teenage biker rebels, specifically Kaneda and Tetsuo, as they accidentally stumble across a military project that plans to use telekinetic humans as weapons. Tetsuo is captured by the government, and it soon becomes apparent he has t- telekinetic powers that rival those of the project's most powerful weapon, a child named Akira, or Akira, if you will. And if that sounds like some crazy sci-fi action tropes, it's because this movie actually started a lot of those tropes, which I am going to get into later. I'm going to talk about the influence this film has had on media in general. Interesting. So this this is one of those one of those flicks that had like a rippling effect to entertainment for all time to come. So even if you're not an anime fan, you've probably digested some content that was created as a direct result of this. Absolutely. There are a lot of things on this list that are that you and I are big fans of. So I nice. initially discovered this film as a young teenager growing up in Texas and the the art style which is referred to as anime, it's it's typically uh, a film uh, and TV style created in Japan and it's aimed at adults. And anime usually tackles mature themes like sex, violence, drug use, swearing there are typically no limits in anime it's like it's usually hyper violent and these are things that honestly no discerning consumer of media bats an eye at today because those are all kind of typically the building blocks of intense storytelling but as a young mormon boy growing up in texas i'd never been exposed to things like that especially not in animation so films like akira ghost in the shell fist of the north star those are all certainly like these kind of shady backroom dealings. They were kind of hard to get a hold of and to view. It was like sleepover stuff for us. Like after our parents had gone to bed, we'd be sneaking our bootleg copies, our VHS videos of this extreme material. And we were hoping to get like a view of some animated boobies or something, which, you know, from our Starship Troopers that Brett and I are both a big fan of that kind of thing. 
Although in I'm this sure movie, there was a yeah. It's I'm a sure little rough a big in market this movie, for right. a big black market, big boob black market for the uh, <laughs> in the Mormon church there. I mean, they love their wives, so <laughs> so you know we're we're always looking to like get a glimpse at something like that or some other radical shit like a person being cut in half and exploding into like an over the top blood fountain, and that's like that's. That's stuff that all came from uh, from this type of film. And the, like, there's a scene in this movie where there's a character, he's injured in a shootout with the cops, and he's bleeding out. And as he's bleeding out on the concrete, he pulls his gun out, and basically does like a suicide by cop, forcing them to finish him off. And he shot what looks like hundreds of times. He shot so many times that the bullets pick him back up off the ground, his body jerks around, and then he falls into a kneeling position, then back onto his stomach where... His body continues to be shredded into these various blood geysers. In a in a movie, it's the kind of thing that I would I would think like, wow, that's some very elaborate squib work. And wow, the acting and movement is so believable. But the fact that it's animated with such an amazing attention to detail and the way he jerks and is thrown around while he's getting shot, it's so disturbing and awesome to imagine the animators tweaking each little move frame by frame by hand. And I'm sure there were probably like board meetings or whatever about them deciding if he's the blood geysers are explosive enough. But it really is like a true masterwork. It's the type of thing that made me want to be a comic book artist when I was a kid. That's really cool. You know, I, I think that one of the reasons that I'm enjoying horror more and more that we were talking about on the content circuit is just the like work that goes into the special effects is so specific and so unique. And on that note, one of my favorite scenes, not that this is horror, but um, just relating to getting shot like hundreds of times, the best scene in a movie I've ever seen this in live action is um, Ben Stiller in uh, (laughs) Tropic Thunder in that opening scene Uh. where he's just like, for comedic effects just riddled with bullets i can imagine that like, like his limp body scene. getting picked up off the get yeah exactly yeah dude that's like man that stuff is like direct homage to this type of filmmaking you know it's like it's like so over the top and so just like it's just so fanciful and, it, you know, like in Tropic Thunder, you can't help but laugh at it because it's so ridiculous. But, like, when you see it in something like this and you know that they went in and drew every little piece and adjusted his movement, it's so crazy, like, how many days or months they probably spent with that in their head just getting that that one image to look so perfect. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So since this, I mean, it is a cartoon, so, like, with a, with a lot of animation and cartoons, there are several instances of like true physical comedy as well. And that's really the stuff that animation is known for, but it's just kind of another example of the mastery on display here. So the fact that several times while I was watching this, I was by myself watching it on my phone and I was chuckling at some like particularly well acted scene. It really is a testament to the convincing nature of what they created. And that's the kind of influence that this film had on my brain when I was, you know, like, 14 years old the type of material that i was consuming and it really kind of changed who i was and honestly i'm kind of happy for that it made 
made me appreciate things like horror when I grew up, you know, and be able to appreciate a film for not just like the fact that it's violent, but also like the artistry that goes into creating it. Yeah, I, I could see. I mean, there, you know, there's something particularly strange about violence being animated. Like maybe it's just maybe I haven't had as much exposure to manga or to anime as you, but I do feel like my desensitization of violence um, through content through entertainment has probably been action movies when I was a kid. You know, those like kind of action thriller, like the like Matrix, basically. Um, or there was this one movie that I watched over and over as a kid that I think it was called Deep Blue Sea. It was like a... With the sharks? Total campy. Yeah, the shark Exactly. But... LL Cool J. You know, when I... Yeah, it, it, yes, it was. Exactly. The shark can swim backwards. They're genius sharks. <laughs> Did you ever hear um, the song that he created for the credits of that film where he's like, my hat is a shark's fin. And he like, he's always wearing like a stupid backwards baseball cap. It's a real bad ending credit song. Oh man. I'm going to have to rewatch that movie, but it's probably not going to make it on the podcast. It's just not probably that not, good. Sorry, LL Cool J. It's pretty good camp though. That is the kind of movie that if it's on, I won't turn it off. I'll definitely sit down and watch yeah, Thomas too. Jane battle sharks any day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I mean, th- my point being that like, that's, that was my introduction to like people getting chopped in half, you know, or bitten in half or just this gratuitous violence. But so for me, like seeing that horror or that, um, hyper violence, as you called it animated is still like a little unsettling to me. Like even at 31, it's like, it's uh, kind of kind of bizarre. Well, you would definitely be unsettled by this movie then, Brett. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So when I was growing up, we didn't even know the term anime. We referred to this as Japanimation, which is it's, it's probably slightly racist. I mean, I was growing up in Texas. But it's also kind of like this outsider term. I looked it up, Japanimation, and I was like, were we just being shitty? But I looked it up, and it is like this outsider term that people called anime like if they weren't really uber nerds that understood that anime is like this deep well of skill and technique in my opinion it really does encompass some of the most amazing hand-drawn art ever created so now just for the fact that like anime is lauded as being this like amazing pool of talent and skill that goes into producing it kind of made me feel bad for disrespecting its legacy by calling it Japanimation when I was a kid. It just seems so, just sounds so shitty now. Well, you were just a kid. You weren't a full-fledged contentologist yet. That's true. Hadn't even gone to fake college yet. (laughs) There's a reason why the anime style has been ate by countless movies and shows, though. Things like The Last Airbender, which I did not know was an American show until I was researching this. And then shows like Powerpuff Girls and then like Castlevania on Netflix. All of those shows are extremely competent, popular shows. And they're lauded as being at the top of their game. And they're all deeply influenced by anime. They all have like very classic anime style to them. And that style typically has an exquisite attention to detail, almost to the point of obsession. Every trick in the books is thrown into the elaborate productions, especially for feature length works like Akira. 
So I was researching animation techniques while I was looking into this. And I, I went to school for computer animation and graphic design. So I learned some of this when I was in college. But man, I got like a master class in animation while I was researching this. We'll link some of the videos that I found a lot of this information on. But one of the, the first things that came up was, uh, we discussed this when we were talking about Spider-Verse, how animation is done on ones or twos. And that essentially means uh, in a in a movie that's shot at 24 frames per second, animating on ones means there is a different drawing for each one of those 24 frames. And that's kind of like big production value animation. You know, that's 24 different drawings for every second of film. And then in kind of like cheaper animation, maybe for TV, they'll animate on twos. And that means that they're drawing 12 images for every 24 seconds. And that they do that because your eye like almost can't tell the difference. You can tell something maybe looks a little jerky, but you know, when the, the illusion of motion is there, animating on twos is a way for you to get away with it on a budget. And there are instances in this film of the animators actually combining ones and twos simply to give the animation this surreal sense of movement. So there'll be, there'll be parts where the animation is super smooth and all of a sudden they'll slow down for just a second like as their motorcycles like turn a corner or something. And it adds this kind of dramatic pause when a two is thrown in there in the middle of a bunch of one animation. But they also, they use a trick of also packing more drawings per second in a, you know, in a, a place where they want to create like a speed ramp effect. So instead of 24 frames per second, it might slow down to like 48 frames per second. And time slows down, you know, when they're doing like these complicated action sequences and it essentially creates like this bullet time effect 11 years before the Matrix. And the Matrix may have popularized that effect, but it can be argued that Akira actually created the bullet time look. With hand-drawn art. Exactly, yeah. Man, that's crazy. It's really cool. And some of that stuff... Honestly, I never caught anything like that watching it growing up. I was just like, wow, this is incredible. That guy just exploded into a blood geyser. But going back and watching it now, that's the kind of thing that I can start to see in animation after researching Akira. Now, do you, I mean, do you have any idea how this relates to like modern day computer generated animation? I mean, I, I, they must it must just be like so much easier to... Uh, manipulate perspective, slow down time, because they're essentially like building these virtual worlds, right? Yeah, so, I mean, we going back to ones and twos a little bit, we actually talked about Into the Spider-Verse, and they use that same trick in Into the Spider-Verse to create like the herky-jerky motion of like Miles Morales when he's not good at swinging, and then as he gets better, his animation goes from twos to ones. But then when you have like, you think about something like Futurama, where they have you know, the spaceships that are flying through 3D space and they're rotating and it's all super smooth. It looks like it's hand-drawn because it's cell-shaded, which means that, you know, it's like a, a flat block of color with a, a dark line around the outside. But that's all created in 3D and then they apply a cell-shading, uh, well, it's called a shader, a cell-shader over the top of it that actually makes it appear that it was hand-drawn. And they didn't have access to anything like that in 1988. So... Anytime in Akira, when you see like a, a sense of perspective or an object moving through the frame, like towards you, and then maybe the camera passes over it and then it 
drives off in the other direction and it shrinks into the distance. It's all done with hundreds and hundreds of individual drawings and very intricately plotting out like how big all the individual objects are going to be as they expand. It's really, it really is just like super high budget, total work overload type of artwork. So I'm guessing this $900 billion budget then went straight to all the artists <laughs> that were slaving away to draw each frame meticulously by hand. I'm sure you're correct, Brett. I'm sure they're all paid at least $6 billion a piece. <laughs> so getting into some of like the other animation techniques, there are examples of things like... Uh, it's like headlights passing over the background images. So typically in animation, the background plates, they're the, these like pre-painted images and scenes that the characters will move through. So like on Scooby-Doo or something, they'll paint a background image and then they'll animate Scooby-Doo and Shaggy and they'll just move them across the frame with a static background. Or the background may be like, uh, you know, some sort of long painting that they'll just roller past the camera. They're, they're not redrawing it all on each frame in Akira, they'll have these elaborate background plates that have, you know, like a lot of like corners and window sills and pipes and stuff like sits like the wall of a building and they'll animate like a headlight passing over the background plate. And the artist will draw individual frames of shadows to conform with what that background plate already contains. So it creates like a real sense of like, light passing through a 3d space so it's something that's the kind of thing that you never see in 2d animation because it requires not only someone that is animating the characters but it also requires a whole nother team of people that are just doing effects animation and doing an effects pass on each scene to make it look like you know the headlight from their motorcycle or something is actually interacting with all this pre-drawn artwork that may have been painted by hand and you know each one of those things may have taken hours and hours and hours to create and each time you see a shadow move in the background you know that's another week or two to three weeks of work just to give you that effect well that's uh six billion dollars well spent is what i say it's true it's you really get your money's worth there was one video i watched while researching this that said that light is almost like a character in this movie they did some revolutionary things with light and Akira. So one of the techniques they used was cutting holes in the animation cells and then rear projecting light through it as the frame was shot. So when there's, you know, it's like a headlight or a spotlight or um, maybe like, uh, you know, the lights from a helicopter or something around those lights, there'll be like this otherworldly glow. And you can see that it's, it's like physical light just coming through and overexposing the frame near those those portions of the shot. And it gives the lights in the movie a definite quality that you don't see in animation typically. Plus Neo Tokyo, which is the setting of the film, is totally awash in neon and holograms and spotlights, and they're all gorgeously animated. It's very fitting in this film that at the end when Tetsuo's powers, his telekinetic powers are at their greatest, the entire city is just washed away in a giant ball of light. And it really does, it does feel like you're really there with it. If you're watching it in a dark room, it'll totally light up the entire room and the stuff starts happening. Well, that's that's pretty crazy. You know, one of my favorite characters in any J.J. Abrams film is the blue lens flare. 
Oh yeah, that's a classic. Yeah, he he probably makes two billion dollars per film. <laughs> yeah, that's adjusted for uh, inflation, of course. For yeah, exactly. So there's also a lot of explosions in this movie, and one trick they use, which once you know about it in animation, you'll pretty much see it everywhere. It's called a black white flash. So right before an explosion or an impact, there are usually two frames, one that flashes white followed by one that flashes black. And that flash implies like an energy transfer and it reads as a big hit. So this that effect is all over this movie. And it's typically followed by these very elaborate and detailed explosions. And explosions are beautifully rendered with like these smoke trails and lighting effects. And the result is always some kind of customized destruction of the elements in the scene. Just the amount of work required for all this is absolutely mind-boggling. It's the kind of thing you almost never see in 2D animation. And keep in mind, it was all done in 1988, like we said, before the use of computers and animation was even possible. It was done by hand with cell shading, cell, cell paintings painstakingly created by artisans. The absolute pinnacle of their craft paid $6 billion per person. In my opinion, it's an example of one of the finest artistic endeavors ever created by man. It's really like the Sistine Chapel of animation, and it truly is a spectacle to behold. Brett, you gotta watch. You gotta you gotta watch that link I send you, man. You gotta see some of this stuff for yourself. I I can't wait to see this. Uh, and honestly, I mean, I, I don't know how much I've talked about this on the podcast, but I mean, I've spent years uh, flying cargo, flying to Japan. And my wife and I have also vacationed uh, around Japan, uh, Tokyo, and some neighboring areas. And it, I, it, you know, anybody that knows me for any length of time will know that I absolutely love Japan. I think it's possibly the greatest country on earth. I mean, Switzerland's up there, but Japan and Switzerland actually have a lot of similarities, in my opinion, in just the way that they put quality into everything they do. I mean, you can go into a gas station and get sushi and it sounds weird to us here in the U S but it will be better sushi, better fish than any sushi restaurant, uh, in the United States, unless you're paying, you know, hundreds of dollars for a party of two. I mean, it is clean. The, I always talk about the taxi cabs in Japan and Tokyo they, they might be like an older car, like an older style, but they are just like detailed to perfection. The driver is wearing a, you know, like a suit uniform that's like clean and pressed and is wearing white gloves. And it's not like, it's not just one, you know, one taxi. Like we're talking every single taxi all lined up, all shining under the lights in Tokyo. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe to somebody until they go there because it is not like any other Asian country. It is not like any country on earth. It is truly a place where, you know, people are brought up from a young age to put others above themselves, to put, uh, to like put a lot of effort into what they do to make a plan and to execute it. And this has been going on for generation after generation after generation. And I'm not saying like there's not problems there i mean there's you know with any country you're going to have some interesting uh quirks that kind of come with the different the different types 
of, um, I don't know, societal pros and cons, if you will. And this is all, I, you know, who's to say what's a pro and what's a con? This is all just another American's perspective. But, um, you know, I mean, it would be a very difficult culture to live in because there's so much pressure to succeed and to um, to carry your family name with honor. I mean, it, it, it is truly... Um, I mean, it's just truly a fascinating culture, and I, I could do a solid 30 minutes on Japan. So, uh, of course, an amazing work of art uh, like this would come out of that particular place. Yeah, and you can tell that even though they weren't, uh, I mean, I'm assuming, weren't making $6 billion a person, you can tell that these guys really cared what they were putting on the page. And, you know, like my opinion of this movie from when I was young, it really wasn't the same as it is now. You know, before going back and watching this film with my contentology glasses on, which I assure you are a real thing, check out the Content Clearinghouse merch store, get your pair today. Uh, But before watching it that way, I was just like, yeah, Akira is really cool. You know, it's, it's, it's a great movie. But now going back and, you know, seeing it with what I know about the way this kind of stuff is created, it really does seem almost like a insurmountable task when you're first starting on the road to create something like this. It's, it was a huge eye opener watching this in 2020, thinking about what they do with computer animation now and how much more labor intensive it would have been in 1988. I get so inspired watching this kind of work and this kind of like patience performed by true artisans. It makes me wish that I had the type of raw talent and discipline to create things like this. Like, Literally every frame in this film is a perfect work of art that anyone would be happy to say is part of their portfolio. And this movie has a, a runtime of roughly two hours at a frame rate of 24 frames per second. That's literally 128,800 beautiful cell paintings that went into crafting this movie's illusion of fluid movement. And it literally is every frame a painting. You hear that about movies, but that is at the very core of what Akira is. Every frame is a painting. You could pause it at any point, and it's like, yep, I would frame that and hang it on my wall. Wow. That's wild. Do you know what um, what month or like what date it came out in 1988? I don't know the exact release date. Okay, I'll have to, I'll have to look into that because that's the year I was born. And I'm curious, what is older, Brett or Akira? Maybe it came out on your birthday. That would be that, super weird, dude. Wouldn't that be a gift to the world? Well, I, you know, the the notable event on my birthday, uh, November 22nd, of course not the same year, was the JFK assassination. So if I had Indeed. a Akira release date that was actually on my birthday, the uh, date and the year, that would be, uh, that might even overshadow the JFK assassination. That would be nice. You, you'd be a triple threat. <laughs> art assassinations and contentology <laughs> and so i know i know how much you love just like sound and music and things like that with your background in music there's also this sound design element they use in this film whenever the telekinetic characters are battling each other there's like this driving monk chant it's like a it's almost like a choir singing but it's really, it's really intimidating sounding. And it's set against this peaceful Japanese bell arrangement. And I also know how much you love 
juxtapositions, Brett. And this is a very interesting juxtaposition of danger and soothing. It creates this really creepy, off-putting effect. It's very iconic. And it's it's like all over the movie. Anytime you hear the bells start coming up, you know there's going to be like some crazy telekinetic shit start to go down. Hmm, interesting. Um, are you familiar with a Gregorian chant? Uh, I think I'm familiar with the concept of it. I don't think I could do one for you if that's what you're getting at. You'll have to... You do one for yeah, me, I, Brett. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's like... It's one of the first examples, if I'm remembering from my music history class correctly, people... It's been a very long time, but I think it's um, one of the first examples of like polymelodic music, like having, you know, two voices or three voices um singing kind of like countering melodies and i wonder if it's i wonder if it's loosely based off of a gregorian chant because i think that that style of music was originally like uh catholic monks that were i don't know singing probably hymns or something but you know that um there's uh, the Monty Python movie where they're like, oh, requiem do, and then they smack their heads with a board. Yeah. I think that might be si- like pretty similar to a Gregorian chant. Yeah, it's probably like a Japanese version of that type of thing because that does sound, it's very similar to something like that in this movie. And it is like, it's like really deep and it's got a lot of bass and it's just that put against the bells really does make you feel like, ugh, like slightly uncomfortable when the start and the stuff starts happening. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, just say all of that awesome work that went into this is kind of why like Akira has been this major pop culture influencer. And it has, a, it's had a huge impact on a lot of things that we both love. So like, uh, Stranger Things pays homage directly to this film with the Tetsuo character. He acquires his psychic powers, and it is that is directly referenced with the Eleven character in Stranger Things. In fact, the whole trope of like the psychic child being experimented on by the government initially gained traction with Akira, and that is, you know, that's something that you see a lot now in sci-fi. That idea I've seen it in video games, I've seen it in movies and TV shows. Ryan Johnson, who is the director of The Last Jedi and Looper, stated that the character of Sid in Looper, the kid that loses his con- the control of his powers and becomes the Rainmaker, it's directly inspired by Tetsuo in Akira. Uh, Chronicle. Oh, wow. I wonder if, uh, yeah, any X Men stuff too. If that's if that's been influenced. Oh, almost certainly. Yeah, just like the whole idea of like psychic powers being like a destructive force. So like uh, so Chronicle, which is a criminally underrated found footage film. You know how much I love things that are criminally underrated. I think I probably mentioned criminal underration at least once every podcast. But it's this film about these high school kids that acquire superpowers. And it was stated by the director, Josh Trank, to have been inspired heavily by all things Akira. So in the movie, two of the kids use their powers just to like have fun and fly around and levitate items. But one character, Andrew, like totally goes off the deep end and becomes the antagonist. It's much like what happens in Akira. And then Michael Jackson featured imagery from the film in his video for Scream. And I'm not really like a huge MJ fan, so I'm not sure how important that is to people. Uh, that one probably reverberates less with people than the extremely well-known Chronicle reference I just made, but... 
I'm assuming some people yeah. like the stuff that Michael Jackson makes. Well, that's pretty crazy. I mean, uh, even if you're not a Michael Jackson fan, the fact that Akira like specifically um, influenced the biggest pop artist of all time, like that is freaking significant. That is wild. Yeah, big time. And then into the Spider-Verse, which we talked about earlier. We talk about it all the time, but the particle accelerator scene at the end with all the buildings flying and the pieces of the city, that's an homage to the energy field at the end of uh, at the end of the film that Tetsuo and Kanata get sucked into. So they go into the ball of light and that almost exact imagery, pieces of the city breaking apart and flying around them, then them fly, flying through and running on sides of buildings. You know, it's like the scene in Spider-Verse is direct reference to that. Also, have you seen Kanye Kanye West's video Stronger? Um, I did see a video of him ranting about uh, an abortion and how he's going to like run for president. And that was unsettling, but I'm not sure that was a music <laughs> video. It's not the same video, but I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised there's some Akira imagery in there somewhere. But this video, <laughs> Stronger, it's a direct reference. Like m- a lot of the f- imagery in the video is recreated scenes from the movie. And Kanye has been quoted as being a huge Akira fan. So if Kanye does end up being elected president, we'll be able to draw a straight line from this 1988 anime masterpiece to the American presidency, which will actually be one of the less bizarre lines that we've been able to draw there lately. (laughs) You know what? I'd rather there be a direct uh, presidential red phone connection to this amazing animated film than the mark burnett reality television show the apprentice personally oh god oh man yeah that's Uh, a strange line you couldn't actually probably couldn't even write that no one would believe it i i this 2020 is going to be the weirdest graphic novel ever for sure (laughs) be action-packed people sitting at home doing nothing the whole world on fire around them this is what all the, the hyper-violent video games, animated shows, movies, television shows, books, this is what it's preparing us for so that we can we can still handle our shit going into uh, the end of 2020 and the end of the world as we know it. Actually, all of that stuff was preparing us to be entertained during the world's most boring apocalypse. <laughs> there you go. That's true. <laughs> Thank God for content. Good. Good call, world. Way to create things for us to consume. Basically, (laughs) Akira's influence is still being felt 30 years later. It's directly responsible for a lot of things we both love. And as you know, one of the things that I love is watching films in their native language, which I did not do this time. I watched a dub version because I didn't want to take my eyes off the animation. I would typically watch in subtitles, but for this one, I made an exception. And if you've ever seen anime, you know that the voiceover is very endearing, I guess might be one way to put it. It certainly adds like this cartoonish nature to the production. And like the the voiceover, it's, it's kind of classic as, as far as anime goes. It's a little cheesy, but I got to admit, like, I really liked it. It really like, it really put me back in that mindset of being like 13, 14 years old and watching these crazy movies because... I remember like the voices always kind of offset how disturbing it all was to me. 
So wait, you're saying the English voiceover or or seeing it in Japanese? The English voiceover. It's all like it's weird. These weird, like kind of high pitched voices and stuff. And after a while, they totally seem like, oh yeah, that's that character's voice. But in the beginning, you're like, oh man, these are some really weird choices for these voices. But it's just like it's it really is like okay. So wait, what's your anime? Gotcha. So what? Should, so how should I watch this? Original language or with the English? If you've never, I seen would it watch before. it with. I would watch it with English. So you don't have to okay. look down at the bottom of the screen because after a while you won't even notice that the voiceover is kind of cheesy. You'll just be like, you'll be totally absorbed in the animation, and it doesn't really, it doesn't detract anything from it. Now, having never seen this film in the original language, I can't tell you if it'd be better. But I just know I wouldn't want to look away and read while I was watching this movie. Gotcha. Good to know. I don't really mind reading subtitles, but it might be a little bit different with an action-packed anime. Yeah, because like you don't want to really miss a frame of this film. And actually, you know, I, I'll share the link where I watched this, a YouTube link of the full movie, no commercials. It is lower resolution. I actually watched it the first time I watched it on my phone. And I didn't really feel like I was missing anything, the action. You know, I sat like in a dark room, held my phone, and it after a while I felt like I was sitting in front of a theater. So even at a slightly lower resolution, it's still extremely impressive. So we'll include that link in the show notes. I'm not sure which filmmaker it was that's like so angry when he found out people watch movies and shows on their phones. I, I feel like it was either Christopher Nolan um Possibly not. I think it might have been Warner Herzog, but I remember like reading about one of these great filmmakers that's just like so angry that somebody would like watch his movie on their phone. And I'm like, you know, sometimes you got to work with what you got to consume your content. I mean, we can't all have theater rooms in our trailers. Yeah, I literally watch everything that we review on this show on my phone, laying in bed. That's just how I consume content these days. If I'm playing a video game, I'll play it on my big screen TV. But for a movie or something, it's just like, okay, this is going to be my end of the night type of thing. And what I love about that, honestly, is that as I'm watching it, I'm typically just like going from the film over to the notes app and outlining whatever it is that I'm into and just back and forth the whole time. It's really, the show has really changed the way that I consume pretty much anything that I'm really into. Because now I'm thinking critically about like almost every decision that they make during the film or the movie or the show or the book, whatever it is. Well, that's uh, I mean, that's how you uh, get to, you know, that PhD level contentology. I mean, that's that's how you that's go how you from listenerologist to contentologist. Few simple steps. That's right. So you're not going to get into the uh, the plot at all. That's very interesting. You're keeping it spoil for, spoiler free for us. Yeah, like I really want to recommend this film like on the merits of its creation and just how impressive it is even if you're watching it on your phone. And the comp- the the plot is very complicated. It's got a, a lot of layers to it. I could talk about it without spoiling it, but honestly to me it's not the part of this film that's the most impressive. What's most impressive is the fact that what you're watching on the screen actually exists at all. And they could have wrapped that around any story and it would have been amazing. The fact that it's wrapped around all these sci-fi tropes that still reverberate in our world today, you know, specifically like telekinetic battling and city destruction and just 
I don't know, levitation, all these things that you see in like cool sci-fi films, that that stuff is, it's really kind of like a bonus just because the film is so cool to look at. Well, from the little blurb that you mentioned, I am I am very interested about the artists and filmmakers' decision to um, use nuclear weapons in a film that was made only, what, 43? 43 years after we dropped a nuclear weapon on Japan, two of them. Uh, so that's very interesting to me. I'm, I'm curious to see how that kind of plays into the plot line. Well, it's literally the exact, the, the first thing that happens in the film. You're looking at Tokyo and it just gets blown away. It's all destroyed. And it's kind of like, you know, it really does sh- kind of, shadow the way that uh the, like nagasaki was rebuilt after you know after the nuke was dropped or hiroshima was rebuilt because the neo tokyo in the film it definitely springs back up as like this much more advanced world but also with that advancement comes like all these layers of like cd underbelly type of type of world and all the, it, it kind of like harbors all these dangerous characters that are kind of on the outskirts of this world that has sprung up from the nuclear ashes. So it is really interesting because when you look at, you know, look at pictures of Nagasaki and Hiroshima now, you know, they're just like these sprawling metropolises and you would never assume like, yeah, that's where a nuke went off, but it's kind of like a testament to like what you were saying earlier about, you know, like the Japanese attention to detail and their their ability to like apply effort towards a problem and to fix it. And that's you know it's it's not even like a question if that's what the reference is that they're making in the film. Interesting. Well, I mean, I will say one more thing about Japan. I feel safe there, and I think even a like a single young female in Tokyo, anywhere in Tokyo, at two in the morning can can feel safe there. I mean the crime rate is so low and it is just everybody is just so polite and looking out for everyone else. I mean of course you have those exceptions that prove the rule where it's like, you know, um the one the one crime every once in a while is just this like horrific, horrendous, you know, multiple stabbings kind of thing. But I mean it's just like so rare and there's just no like real crime. Like it's it's just wild. It's such a wild place and Man, thank goodness that uh, that's never happened to Tokyo, and hopefully it never will, because I would really like to go see the Olympics in Tokyo that have been postponed uh, next winter. That would be that would be amazing. It's so safe; even a girl can go there. <laughs> it really is. So Shinjuku, Shinjuku is the red light district um, kind of area, and I mean. You know, I say red light district, and it's it still is like clean, safe. It's just a just a slightly, just a little bit more colorful than the rest of Tokyo. But I mean, but you can see some animated boobies there. You probably uh, could. You got to go into one of those shops and then just like start going up the stairs, and the the animation gets more and more wild the the higher you go up in those those uh, crazy buildings. Yeah, have you? Have you gone up some of these stairs? Have you explored some of this type of uh, oh, red dude. light area? 
I've been all over Tokyo, buddy. My my oh, favorite man, part so cool. of Shinjuku uh, was the um, robot restaurant, which was basically like a live action anime. And um, so it's in like the basement of this restaurant, I guess you could call it. It kind of looks like an underground circus. And it has these elaborate costumes and lasers and pyrotechnics. And it's, it's, it's difficult to get reservations to this. But because I was just going by myself, I was just there on a layover in Narita and took the train to Tokyo. Um, I just happened to get like an open seat in the front row. And fortunately, I read on TripAdvisor to wear earplugs. And I mean, that saved my ass because it was so incredibly loud. But I was in the front row and I literally had to duck under these like giant animatronic dinosaurs with things like flying over my head. (laughs) Have I ever sent you pictures or video of the robot restaurant? No, but you should uh, post it on our Instagram if you have it. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. I'll definitely uh, send them your way. It was, it's one of the highlights of my trip to Japan. And I mean, it's just like, it, oh, Japan's just so cool. It's just hard, hard to, hard to believe a, a place like that exists. I love it. Well, gosh dang, I want to go, Brett. Let's do it, buddy. Maybe I will. Well, let's wrap this thing up. Um, if you're into anime, you've probably already seen Akira. It's the perennial classic of the genre. It's an absolutely definitive work. If you're not an anime fan or if this film has slipped through the cracks for you, definitely check it out. You could watch it on the YouTube link that we'll provide. It will probably be an eye-opening experience for you into the world of what true artistry through animation can be. So I hope you guys love it as much as I do. Well, thanks, Josh. I can't wait, man. That's unbelievable. I mean, I've always had the utmost respect for animation whether it's hand-drawn or computer generated because i you know i just like don't have the same technical understanding and background that you do but uh when you say every frame is a painting well gosh darn that really makes me want to watch akira and uh i'm sure all the listenerologists out there are going to be popping this into their youtube vhs platforms and viewing boxes (laughs) cranking it up (laughs) um don't forget to reach out to us on instagram at the content clearinghouse same with facebook we got a facebook page the content clearinghouse uh you can email us you can text us if you know us we'd love to hear from you check out akira and let us know what you thought of this japanimation masterpiece or let's just anime? call it anime masterpiece. <laughs> exactly. Also, rate, review, five stars. Let us know you like the show. Thanks for listening.